This week on Making Contact. I've been working on climate change issues now for over two decades. We're no closer to acting now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this country than we were 10 or 15 years ago, which is, which is a great tragedy. Global warming is happening now. It threatens human civilization. But a significant portion of humanity doesn't seem that concerned. The notion anthropogenic gases, CO2, methane, are the major cause of climate change, yes, I think that is a hoax. On this edition, the second of a special two-part series produced by Brian Edwards Teekert. On climate change that is happening, the political response that isn't, and the people trying to break the gridlock. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Shortly after the 2010 round of U.N. climate talks, the U.S. Congress swore in a new class of freshmen. They were mostly Republicans, and some of them had questions about the science of climate change. Why 40 years ago when I was in in elementary and middle school were we taught that uh, an increase in greenhouse gas effect was going to lead to a new ice age. Are there other scientists like you that have reviewed these kind of reports and said, wait a minute, they're leaving out key data? The sunspot effects, what, what do we know about that? Is it your opinion that the United States Congress should pass legislation that increases the government's control over how much energy the American family uses? And has the IPCC studied why are the ice caps on Mars melting? That was from a House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing on March 8, 2011. Three days later, the committee approved a bill that would block the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating greenhouse gases. Now, the amazing thing about that hearing is that it probably would not happen anywhere else. There is no other government on the planet where a major political party is in the hands of people who think basic climate science is a hoax. If you go to Great Britain... For instance, the Conservative Party is very clear that the science is real. That's Joe Rome. He is the editor of climateprogress.org. The Conservative government of Great Britain just announced that they intend a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So, yeah, I mean, other countries don't have this anti-scientific wing that has captured a major political movement. So the question is, What makes the United States so special? How did the world's wealthiest nation, the country with the best universities on the planet, the country that put a man on the moon, wind up electing a Congress that is anti-science? I'm Brian Edwards Teekert. This is part two of a special series in which we examine why the world by and large is not responding to global warming. Today we start with the American voter. My name is Anthony Lazowitz. I am the director of the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale University. How many Americans actually believe that global warming is happening? We now know that about 64% of Americans believe that climate change is happening. Which means about 36% don't? Exactly. That seems like quite a lot. Yes, it's gone up and down over the years. We saw a very dramatic decline in public beliefs over the past couple years. So beliefs that climate change is happening, that it's human-caused, that scientists agree about it, that it's something that people worry about, all of those levels dropped significantly over the past two years. Which is the opposite of what you would expect. 
Over the same two-year period, the science on global warming has gotten more certain and more dire. Leiserowitz says the biggest factor is the economy. People worried about losing their jobs tomorrow worry less about where the sea level will be in the year 2050. There's a psychological finding called a limited pool of worry. And that is just like you have a limited amount of attention, we have a limited amount of worry that we can devote to different things. And as one thing suddenly takes our attention and we worry more about it, in a sense we have less worry left over for other issues. Then there is the pool of people who don't think climate change is happening. Or at least they don't think people are to blame for it. This group has also grown over the past two years. And that's harder to blame on a bad economy. UC Berkeley sociologist Rob Willer has been studying climate skepticism. He says some of the messages that environmental campaigners spread may actually be working against them. We were interested in the puzzle of why it is that people don't believe in global warming. And when we looked for a possible explanation for why this might be the case, it occurred to us that global warming might constitute a very real threat to people's fundamental beliefs about the world. So there's this 40-year-old research tradition in psychology that shows that people are deeply committed to viewing the world as fundamentally just, stable, fair, and predictable. Basically, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And when there's exceptions to that, it's either the case that this is misinformation that is best discredited or disregarded, or that you're misperceiving it, that actually these people that bad things are happening to, they actually deserve it for some reason. Somebody is poor, for example, it's because, oh, they, they probably deserved it. They're lazy or they didn't work hard. People that are higher in this belief tend to think in this ways. Okay, so how does this apply to climate change? Our thinking was that global warming and the potentially dire consequences of global warming might constitute a real threat to the belief that the world is stable, just, and fair. Obviously, global warming threatens to destabilize the world. And then also, it isn't going to be particularly discriminating in its consequences, right? Like we're all going to suffer potentially from extreme consequences of climate change, whether or not we drove hybrids or SUVs. And so this sort of indiscriminate effects of global warming means that it's a very real challenge to beliefs in the world as just and fair. So your theory is if someone's got this just world belief, we get what's coming to us. And you tell them what's coming is climate change and it's going to be really, really, really awful for everybody. Yeah. They don't want to believe you. That's right. And so people are very motivated to discredit or disregard messages that contradict deeply held beliefs. So here's what they did to test that theory. First, they asked 100 people questions about global warming. And they made them read one of two mock news articles. Then they tested the participants' belief in global warming again. Both articles started with a summary of the latest climate science, which is pretty grim. The first ends on an optimistic note. It quotes scientists saying we can turn climate change around with innovative technology. But the second article ends by saying global warming may already be irreversible, period. It literally quotes a scientist saying global warming is going to change everything for the worse. Turns out this did not just bum people out. It actually made them doubt the science of climate change. Now, in a related experiment, they tested some TV ads. And this one came from the Environmental Defense Fund. It's a middle-aged man on some railroad tracks. Global warming. And there's a train. Some say irreversible consequences are 30 years away. 30 years? Now the train is right behind him. That won't affect me. And then he steps aside, 
and you see behind him a small child that then is presumably killed by the runaway train that is global warming. And you know, this is, this is a message that we specifically found did not work well. So this is a message that actually the Environmental Defense Fund invested a lot of money in, and your conclusion is it actually had the exact opposite effect of what they intended. Yet we can't be sure that that's what the effect was out in the world, but in our studies, that's exactly what the consequence of exposure to this film was. And what the results of our research show, you know, is a few things. First, one of the factors that drives global warming denial is the fundamental tendency that people have to believe that the world is basically stable, orderly, fair, and predictable. But second, really negative, dire messages about global warming are especially likely to backfire because they threaten this belief. There's something that I'm a little uneasy with here. Yeah. The science is really dire. Right, right, exactly, yeah. So... What if it's the belief in a just world that's wrong? Well, you know, that's, I mean, that's a good question. (laughs) So a lot of liberals, for example, would say that's bogus. The world isn't fundamentally fair and just and bad things happen to good people all the time. It's called social problems and we need to address them and we maybe should use government to address them. And it is the case that liberals have lower beliefs in the world is just. But these people have largely already been reached. And so... If you're trying to reach the the people who haven't been reached yet, it's useful to think about the framing of the message and to specifically think about a way to frame the message in a more positive way that emphasizes potential solutions. So, for example, people could emphasize how technological investment and ingenuity can provide a solution to climate change. Or people might think more about emphasizing the positive byproducts that could result from efforts to address global warming, like creating jobs, reducing dependence on foreign oil, improving technology you know, in the country and in the world in general, stable and secure sources of energy for the longer term. And these are all things that wouldn't violate people's belief in a just world and could even be consistent with it and could be a way to, to reach the people that are hardest to reach. The idea is that even a science-denying, anti-government conservative can get behind a call for green jobs and energy independence. Who doesn't like jobs? Who does not like independence? Some polls support this idea. And you know who reads polls? Clean energy breakthroughs will only translate into clean energy jobs and especially clean energy technology. Electricity will come from clean energy sources. When Barack Obama ran for president, both he and his Republican opponent were publicly calling for action to stop climate change. Three years later, his State of the Union address did not use the words climate change or global warming once, just clean energy, which some say is taking the keeping things positive thing too far. Failure number one, I think, is failure to lay out clearly the science. That is Joe Rome again. Among other things, he is a PhD in physics, so he kind of has a soft spot for the science. The advocates in the last two years actually decided to try to sell the climate bill by talking mostly about clean energy jobs, energy independence, and national security, and what China is doing to take leadership in these industries. Which, by the way, these are good and accurate messages, but I just think you have to talk about climate problem in order to motivate action on the solution. Rome says the media have largely dropped climate change. The University of Colorado actually tracks this numerically. Their data show the coverage of climate change in six major U.S. newspapers dropped nearly 80 percent in the four years from 2007 to 2011. When the media and major politicians talk less about a subject, then the public will perceive it as less urgent. And 
the president gives speeches on Afghanistan and he gives speeches on the economy. He has not given one single major speech on climate. Rome says Americans should feel a great sense of urgency to stop climate change. High-soaring rhetoric about green jobs may appeal to a bigger slice of the public, but if it doesn't actually mobilize them, it doesn't help, particularly when the industries fighting climate change regulations are spreading their own message. There has become the rise of a wholly separate or largely separate conservative media. And that conservative media, led by Fox News, has become a drumbeat of disinformation that parrots the disinformation campaign talking points. So whether the best message is here's the science or here's the solution may be a moot point. If people aren't hearing about climate change from politicians and they aren't hearing about it from most media, then there's fertile ground in the American mind for this. Now, earlier tonight, the House passed the cap-and-trade, cap-and-tax legislation that Democrats argued... before anyone heard about it. The report debunked the science behind global warming and its conclusion... Two more factual errors that have been discovered in the UN climate report. Number two... Thanks, Alan. And a scientific point of view that we don't hear much these days about the, the globe is cooling? Who knew? Who knew indeed? That, quote, scientific report that Fox host Steve Ducey referred to was authored by an economist, not a scientist. Fox identified him only as a researcher. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. We now return to the second of a special two-part series on how climate change is affecting the world now, produced by Brian Edwards Teekert. Northeastern Panama is one of the wettest places on Earth. Everything that isn't jungle or river is a thick red mud that never seems to dry out. Eight years ago, the Changuinola Valley was three hours from the nearest paved road. Four small villages of thatch-roof homes were perched on stilts among the pristine tropical rainforest of the Palo Seco Reserve. But then the villages started getting visits from an American energy corporation called AES. Florencio Quintero is a community leader in the town of Guayabal. They arrived in the area and started to give various offers to the landholders. They started to purchase people's conscience. The company wanted Nobe Indians like Florencio to sign away their rights to land where they live and farm on the valley floor. The company's plan was to build a large hydroelectric dam. The deception was that they told me the company's going to flood your land anyway. If you don't sign a deal, you're going to lose all your rights. I didn't know anything, so when they told me that they'd give all the kids scholarships, well, that's why we signed a deal. But when I signed it, they didn't come through on their commitments. Here's what this project looks like. The company has built a highway through town. It has leveled half a hillside to make a staging ground and warehouse. 
It has erected a concrete dam that towers over everything else in the jungle. Company workers are now demolishing homes and clear-cutting forests to make way for rising water. Below the dam, the river will actually disappear. The company is redirecting it through a tunnel that it has blown through the side of a mountain. Which means the villagers who aren't losing their land, the ones who live below the dam, they're still losing their main source of protein, which is a river fish called boca chica. Cristina Bonita has raised her family by the riverside. The company has offered her money to move, but she says you can only spend money once. She needs land to give to her grandchildren. Where will one eat? Where will the house be? There's no land, no land to live on. Where will we plant vegetables? That's the problem facing everyone along the river now. The dam is projected to generate 200 megawatts of power. And for this, the company has applied to a United Nations agency, the executive board of the Clean Development Mechanism, for credits that it can sell in carbon markets. This is the Westin Resort and Spa in Cancun, Mexico, about 10 miles from the official UN climate talks in 2010. Every year during these talks, there is a parallel conference organized in the same city, run by a group called the International Emissions Trading Association, or AIDA. It's an association of businesses that hope to profit under systems that let them trade permission to release greenhouse gases, carbon trading schemes. AIDA's members include oil giants, coal plant operators, and AES, the company building that dam in Panama. Henry Derwent is AIDA's CEO. The point about carbon is that it is so ubiquitous in our economy, and we know so little about the comparative costs of reducing it in different parts of industry and the whole economy, including agriculture, that the only sensible way of dealing with this is say, look, we don't actually want to hit this industry or that industry, we want to hit carbon. So let's identify carbon, let's put a price on it, and just wait and see who rolls up with the cheapest, best and most effective means of reducing it. This is the economic argument for pollution trading. But then there's a completely different argument, that tackling greenhouse gas emissions through a trading scheme is more politically viable than straight-up regulation. Legislation ought to work. If you just tell somebody they'll do something or they'll go to jail, that's pretty much of a motivator. But you've got to get a law passed first, and it's much easier to get laws passed by people who are a bit concerned about jobs and industry. If what you're talking about is flexibility in regulation and the prospect of some sort of profit, if you actually play your cards right, rather than if you say, the only thing we're going to do here is force you to do something right now, or we fine you a huge amount. Many large environmental groups have basically conceded that the coal and oil lobbies are beating them in Congress. So they've embraced carbon trading as a way to try to win over the opposition, or at least neutralize it. David Hawkins is the director of climate programs at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He was a featured speaker at the AIDA conference in Cancun. We've tended to follow a model, and it may prove to be a naive model, of trying to talk to intelligent people working in a range of areas, including business, and basically try to convince them that avoiding this problem is going to be fundamentally bad for their goals, even if their first goal is not climate protection. I still think that is likely to bring us change faster than the broad social movement approach can. But can carbon trading actually stop climate change? 
here's how these systems work. The basic concept is if you do not want to cut your own pollution, you can pay someone else to cut theirs. Countries or companies that cut more than their allotment get carbon credits that they can sell off at a profit. Then there is a second system, and it was set up under the Kyoto Protocol. If you are a polluter in the industrialized world, you can buy credits from a project in the developing world that will help steer that country on a non-polluting development path. This is what's called the clean development mechanism. What you're financing does not in and of itself cut pollution. It just, in theory, ensures that the other country will add less pollution as it grows. In Panama, for instance, AES did not argue the country would shut down any dirty plants once the dam was built. It argued the dam would prevent Panama from having to build more dirty plants in the future. Now, there are supposed to be safeguards in that system to prevent fraud, to prevent human rights abuses, to protect the rights of indigenous people. So environmental groups working in Panama started mounting legal challenges on every front. Osvaldo Jordan heads a nonprofit in Panama City called the Association for Conservation and Development. We always thought that there were three major areas in which the projects were faulty. One was the lack of a proper archaeological survey, which is an issue that has never re really been solved. The other was the absence of a socioeconomic assessment. When the company began working, they didn't even know how many people lived there. And finally, in the biological assessment was also very poor. Particularly, we have made a lot of emphasis on the fish and shrimp in the Shangri-La River who are altitudinal migrants, like salmon in the U.S., but more complex. In Panama's courts, their challenges got perpetually delayed. The dam kept moving forward. So eventually, angry villagers started blocking the new highway into town. Ruben Mirana. We did three protests, and then the government intervened. The police and people commissioned to defend the company, paid by the company. With the first protest, where the community came out to block the road, the police repressed them violently. That is Pedro Albrego. He works at the Nobe Center for Development and Technical Assistance. He tried to help the roughly 70 Nobe who wound up in jail that day. They were detained in jails. They had children in jail. Children got beaten. Pregnant women were beaten, nude, in the jail of Changuinola. In a legal filing, Panama's government said national police had dispersed the protesters, quote, with non-lethal force, and denied that any children were beaten in government custody. The regional head of Panama's environmental agency, ANAM, refused to do a recorded interview, but he was willing to talk off tape. He blamed outside environmental groups for, quote, agitating the indigenous. He strongly supported the dam project, but he did concede there had been some problems with getting informed consent from the Nobe. In any case, the crackdown drew a lot more attention. The UN Rapporteur on Human Rights issued a scathing report. Some Nobe filed a case with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Environmental groups filed multiple ejections to the dam project's application for carbon credits. And while those credits were under consideration, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights took its first actions. It rejected the Panamanian government's bid to dismiss the case and requested the government halt all construction in order to prevent irreparable damage. A few months later, the AES application for carbon credits came back. Rejected. Now, on one hand, 
What happened in Panama makes the case that some safeguards in the pollution trading systems can work, as long as there are enough lawyers and activists applying pressure from the outside. But here's the interesting part. To apply for carbon credits, AES had to argue that the money would make a difference. In fact, it had to argue that it could not finance the dam without that money, that the project was what policy walks call additional. And here's what happened on the Changinola River. The carbon credits fell through, but the dam kept moving forward. In fact, as I record this, AES has already started to flood the valley, which suggests the dam project never needed the carbon credit money in the first place. And that raises a very big question for all the other projects that did not draw international protest, that did get approval, and are already getting funding through carbon markets. Is the money from carbon trading actually lowering pollution? Or is the planet's atmosphere basically the victim of accounting fraud? We began to tally incidences of corruption and malfeasance that were being reported in the carbon marketplace, primarily in Europe, but also around the world. And what we saw was actually quite startling. This is Michael Dorsey. He directs the Climate Justice Research Project at Dartmouth College. More than 90% of the incidences of fraud over the sort of four-year life of the European Union emissions trading scheme have taken place in the past, essentially, you know, three, four quarters, which is actually counter to the theory. The theory says as the markets mature, then we'll see less crime, we'll see less bad practices, we'll see more normal, well-behaved processes. We're seeing exactly the opposite, and that's really, that's the empirical reality. A lot of what's being negotiated at UN Climate Talks right now are ways to bring new types of projects into the carbon markets that exist. Right now, for instance, they are considering a program to combat deforestation. Opponents worry that it would give companies an incentive to actually cut down trees so that they can get credit for planting new ones. Climate justice groups call these false solutions, programs that can do a lot of local damage without impacting climate change at all. And that is why a lot of the climate campaigners at UN Climate Talks are protesting rather than lobbying. Protesters are in a difficult situation. The status quo is cooking the planet. There is no question about this. Protesting the negotiations, even if protesters stop every policy that they think is a false solution or a bad idea, it doesn't fix that. So they have to rally around something else. Right now, the closest they've got is coming out of Bolivia. That is Evo Morales, an Aymara Indian by birth, a socialist by choice, and president of Bolivia by a rather overwhelming vote. He's speaking to activists outside the Cancun climate talks. Bolivia has proposed a new environmental treaty at the United Nations, one that gives legal rights to the planet. Angelica Navarro is Bolivia's lead negotiator on climate change. If Mother Earth has right, we will have it. And I just want to give you an example. Water. In Bolivia, we say that all living beings have the right to water. And human beings are just one living being among others. So if Mother Earth has the right to water, we're all going to have the right to water. But that's probably not going to win approval at the United Nations anytime soon. Which leaves things where they are now. Stuck. The Kyoto Protocol, the only legally binding international agreement to combat climate change, is set to expire in the year 2012. 
In the U.S. Congress, the only direction climate politics seems to move is backwards. And the planet isn't waiting. Sea levels are already rising. There are historic storms in some places, historic droughts in others. Some towns and cities are acting where most nations are not. They're looking at their coastlines and planning which lands to abandon and which to fortify. They're discussing where their water will come from as rain patterns shift. And there's a school of thought that says when more of these conversations take place at the local level, in city councils and planning commissions, then climate change will be harder for people to discount and ignore. And then, maybe, maybe, there will be enough political will to tackle it at the global level as well. For Making Contact, I'm Brian edwards Teeker. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. The executive producer for this special two-part series on climate change is Claire Hope Cummings. This series was made possible by a grant from the LEA Fund, with additional support from the Cultural Conservancy. Check out our website at radioproject.org to get our podcast, download past shows, or help make a difference by supporting our work. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.